Good early afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium for our book, uh, book forum on In Search of Jefferson's Moose, Notes on the State of Cyberspace. The book is a, a fun romp through early Virginia and the guts of the Internet, all between the same, the same covers. Uh, it's a real joy, and we're very pleased, of course, to have the author with us, David Post, and two wonderful commentators, Clive Crook and Jeff Rosen. Uh, uh, David will do about... 15 minutes uh, introducing the ideas in the book. Our commentators, 10 minutes apiece. We may have some discussion among ourselves, but be thinking of questions you have for them or, or commentary on the issues that are raised. Let me do some introductions formally first, of course. David Post is the I. Herman Stern Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law in Philadelphia. He's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and thank you for that, David. You. He's a fellow at the Institute for Information Law and Policy at New York Law School, a contributor to the uh, the Volok Conspiracy blog, an excellent blog, and a member of two bands, the Dwights and Bad Dog, so be looking for those. <laughs> Clive Crook is the Financial Times Chief Washington Commentator. After 20 years working at The Economist, he moved from Britain to the U.S. in 2005 to write for the Atlantic Monthly, where he remains a senior editor, and for National Journal before joining FT. He writes mainly about the intersection of politics and economics. And Jeff Rosen is a professor of law at the George Washington University, a friend of Cato, and the legal affairs editor of The New Republic. He knows his way around the book world, of course. His most recent is The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries That Defined America, and he's the author of The Most Democratic Branch, The Naked Crowd, and The Unwanted Gaze. We'll hear from all three. First, join me in welcoming up David Post. Thanks to Cato for hosting this, uh, Jim putting it together, uh, Clive and Jeff for coming and uh, taking time out for this, and thanks to you all for coming, for braving this Washington snowstorm that we had, not much of a snowstorm. Uh, I know my job uh, is to summarize the book and to do so in such a way that's not only coherent uh, to those of you who haven't read it. Uh, but also interesting to those of you who have, um, but which implants the desire in the former to read it immediately, uh, and all in about 15 minutes or so, 400 words, 500 words. Uh, this is a hard book to summarize in 500 words or 15 minutes. Um, if I could do that, I would have written a blog posting instead of a book. Um, the book actually began as a blog, kind of a blog posting before there were blogs, Back in 1995, a little essay I wrote on Jefferson and cyberspace for the Electronic Frontier Foundation website, which was an odd thing back in 1995. Um, but I found I couldn't tell the story I wanted to tell in 500 words, uh, which is why I wrote a whole book. Um, so what is the story I want to tell? Uh, it's to describe what the internet would look like through Jefferson's eyes. What would he make of it? What ideas would he bring to the table about it? What features would he think are important? What unimportant in it? And why? Now, why do I want to tell that story? Um, because the internet is hard to think about and hard to understand, and I need all the help I can get from Jefferson or anywhere else. Uh, how does it work? Who built it? 
where is it exactly? Um, is it a place? We talk about it like it's a place. We go there, we move around, we visit, go into chat rooms. Um, but we know that it really isn't a place. It's really, it's really, what is it really exactly? Um, what's going on out there? Who runs it? Um, and whose law governs it? Uh, now, those really are hard questions. You may be thinking to yourself, well, they seem like hard questions, but I'm sure the experts have figured it all out by now. But I'm here to tell you they have not. Uh, my colleagues and I spend a lot of time uh, arguing, fighting about those questions, and just plain scratching our heads about them. Um, they're hard, and I think we all could use a little help. And I want to tell a story of the Internet through Jefferson's eyes, because Jefferson could bring some interesting ideas to the table. Uh, Jefferson had some pretty interesting ideas about pretty much everything. So why should the Internet be any different? Um, now, I, I wouldn't think that this crowd uh, here at Cato, an institution that justly prides itself on trying to keep Jefferson's ideas alive, uh, would need much persuading on that score. That if I could pull it off uh, and sketch out what Jefferson would actually think about the Internet, that we'd have something interesting and useful. Um, I do realize that some people do need persuading. Uh, one of the things that kept me going on this project uh, was back in uh, 2000, I had an encounter uh, with my nephew and his wife. They were living abroad in Belgium at the time. Um, uh, they're both really smart, really hip, 30-somethings, um, very socially conscious, intellectually curious. Um, I told them I was at work on a book about Jefferson and the Internet. And they gave me this look, like, Jefferson? You know, who gives a damn what Jefferson would think about the Internet? <laughs> so I admit there's a subtext in the book. Uh, Jefferson has taken a very bad rap over the last decade or so, and I don't know if I can single-handedly reverse the trend, but I am sure going to try. Uh, pulling all this off, though, seeing the net through Jefferson's eyes, means recreating Jefferson, or trying to, which is no small task because there are so damn many Jeffersons. Jefferson the architect, the botanist, the cartographer, the mineralogist, the political theorist, the gardener, the philosopher, the paleontologist, etc. The fox knows many things, and the hedgehog knows only one big thing. Jefferson's the only person I can think of, Darwin may be the other, who was both one of the great hedgehogs of history and one of the great foxes the propounder of some of history's greatest big ideas, and simultaneously one of the planet's leading experts on cartographic techniques, viniculture, canal building, plow design, linguistic evolution, meteorology, etc. There's a wonderful uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy quote. You've probably all heard it. At a dinner at the White House honoring 49 Nobel Prize winners, Kennedy noted that it was the greatest collection of talent ever gathered in that building, with the exception of when Jefferson dined alone. Recreating Jefferson means trying to figure out what he was up to with all that foxy stuff. What held it all together? How were those big ideas, like the ones expressed in the Declaration of Independence, connected to the fossils that he spread out on the lawn of the White House and poured over for hours? How was the summary view of the rights of British America connected to the study of the evolution of Anglo-Saxon, another area in which Jefferson was 
a world-class expert. Where is the link between the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom and the design of meteorological measuring devices? What was he up to? And what does it have to do with the Internet? Well, again, if I could just tell you, I would just tell you. Um, but it's sort of a long story. Read the book. <laughs> but I can give you the flavor by talking a little bit about the moose. The moose really helps. It helps recreate Je uh, Jefferson we don't know all that well, um, but should get to know better. And it helps us think about what this all might mean for the Internet. You may already know the story of the moose. In 1787, Jefferson had the complete skeleton and carcass with antlers of an American moose, seven feet tall at the shoulders, shipped to him in Paris, where he was serving as the ambassador. It was reassembled and installed in the entrance hall of his residence. It's an amusing little episode, Jefferson at his most lovably eccentric. Uh, and it was used for that purpose. You may remember in the movie Jefferson in Paris, they had a scene with the moose in the background. Yeah, I think there was even a little comment about it in the movie. But lovable eccentricity aside, what was he up to? What did he care about? And why did he care so much about it to go to the expense, which was considerable, and the trouble, which was immense, to do this? And in 1787, one of those turning point years in history, when there was a lot of other stuff, to put it mildly, on his plate, he called the moose in a letter to a friend an acquisition more precious than you can imagine. <laughs> was he serious? Well, well, he was serious, it turns out. Um, and he was indeed up to something, something important. Uh, to begin with, he was trying to understand the principles of scale, the laws of nature governing the growth and the size of things. Jefferson cared deeply about scale in the world of nature, about how small things get big and how big things get small and why. He was, of course, a great architect and a great map maker, so it's probably not surprising he was thinking a lot about scale. Um, the moose was part of an argument about scale that Jefferson was embroiled in, an argument about the relative size of new world versus old world animals. There was a theory gaining ground among European scientists the very best of them, in fact, that animals in the New World were actually smaller versions, scaled-down versions, of their Old World counterparts. Jefferson thought it was hogwash, as true as the fables of Aesop, he said. And he devoted much of his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, to a detailed empirical refutation of the theory, complete with tables and charts and exhaustive listings of animals large and small. As I put it in the book, Jefferson was surely the only American president who knew or cared that the American flying squirrel weighed four pounds on average, but the European flying squirrel only 2.2. And the moose, the largest of the known New World quadrupeds along with the bison, and Jefferson couldn't get a bison, um, was the coup de grace as it were, the final nail in the coffin for this degeneracy theory. And Jefferson really cared about this debate about animal scale. Why? He cared about it because of what we could learn from it about the laws of nature, the laws of nature and of nature's God, as he put it in the Declaration of Independence. And he cared about the laws of nature because he thought that human action and human institutions were subject to those laws 
and that we could better guide our action and design our institutions the more we understood about them. And it turns out he was right. Um, he was right that understanding the principles of animal scaling would unlock something in the laws of nature. The study of animal size and scale, the very debate that Jefferson was embroiled in with the moose about the size of new world and old world animals was instrumental in the development of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, one of the greatest and most profound of all the laws of nature. And he was right, too, that it could help us design human institutions. Jefferson managed to solve one of history's great scaling problems, the problem of the extended republic. How do you scale up republican government, government by the people, government in which the governed control the governors, over large territories? The conventional wisdom was it couldn't be done. It was called Montesquieu's law. Republican government couldn't scale. You could never get it to work over large territories. Many people, including many very smart people, Alexander Hamilton among them, who was no dope, um, thought that the 13 United States might already be too big for Republican government to succeed. The Whiskey Rebellion had been proof of that. You know, we were going to have our hands full just keeping Western Pennsylvania under control, let alone additional territory. And Jefferson thought that was hogwash, too. And he spent much of his life trying to figure out how to scale up Republican institutions so that they could span a continent. And he did figure it out. He did scale them up. It was largely Jefferson's plan that ended up guiding U.S. administration of the territory west of the Alleghenies. And it was Jefferson's plan that brought about the unthinkable, a republic covering a territory so big that nobody in 1787 even had the faintest idea how big it was from the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans. And if you don't know the story, it, you should. It's a wonderful one. The only thing more incredible about the plan he came up with to scale up Republican government is the fact that most of it actually came to pass. So when it comes to questions of growth and scale, he was up to something big. And questions of growth and scale, it turns out, are of deepest importance for our understanding of the Internet. Because the Internet is a phenomenon defined entirely by its scale. The network we call the Internet is the one out of hundreds of thousands, millions of networks out there that somehow got to be really, really big. That's why we call it the Internet. As I put it in the book, in what I regard as the best sentence in the book, it's not big because it's the Internet. It's the Internet because it's big. How did that happen? How did it get so big? Why this network and not some other network? Can it keep growing? And if so, for how long? Unless we understand those, we don't really understand the Internet. And we may not understand how to keep it going. We need to understand growth and scale on the net because, like Jefferson, we face a scaling problem in the design of our law and the design of our institutions for applying and enforcing law. We need to scale them up again, this time to global scale. I don't think we know how to do that, but we really do need to figure it out. There aren't even too many good ideas floating around about how to do that. You know, the UN? We actually tried that. It's one of the stories I tell in the book. Um, there was a UN-built internet. You probably don't know that. Um, UN administered back in the late 80s and early 90s the internet in those days. Um, but it didn't get big. 
So I don't have a, pretend to have an answer really about how to do that. I'm not even saying that Jefferson's answer, which I try to spell out in the book about how to scale up, is the right one for us now. Maybe his ideas will work again. Maybe they won't. But we do need collectively to get to work on all that. And finally, in as much as this is Washington, D.C., perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, this is all well and good. Jefferson, Moose, and the Internet, uh, all very interesting. But how does it help us with the financial crisis? <laughs> we are all, understandably enough, pretty preoccupied with that these days. Governing the Internet's all very interesting, but it's pretty trivial, contrasted, I suppose, with the possible collapse of our economic system. And if we're all foraging for roots and berries in a few years, we'll regret spending all this time thinking about governing the Internet. So let's leave academic and esoteric questions about the Internet aside and take care of important things. Well, not so fast. Uh, actually, I think this can help us solve the financial crisis. Clive will disabuse me of that notion, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, not only because the Internet can help pull us out of this mess, because the Internet can be a powerful engine, quite possibly the most powerful we have, for growth and trade and communication. And we're going to need that. So it would surely be good to know that we can keep it going and keep it growing. Oh, incidentally, did I mention it's running out of numbers? Read the book. Um, I do hope someone is paying attention to that. Uh, and this can all help for another reason also. I was struck by a comment Tom Friedman made in the Times at the start of the financial crisis. What we have to understand, he said, is the new reality in the financial world. Everything is interconnected, and nobody is in charge. Sounds like the Internet. Everything is interconnected, and nobody is in charge. But unlike the global financial system, the Internet seems to work pretty well. Indeed, it is surely the most successful international engineering project in history. And it is not that far-fetched to suggest that if we understood better how it works as well as it does, that that might hold some useful lessons for us. So with that, I turn it over to whomever is next. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'll be very brief. Um, um, I basically just want to recommend this book to you. I don't know how many of you have read it yet. Um, perhaps you're skeptical about whether it's worth reading. I heard something about the book some months ago, very briefly, um, and uh, politely expressed interest in the project, um, but had some reservations about whether this thing, whatever it was, could be made to work. Um, I have to say that um, I think it's a complete success. I mean, I, I devoured this book when it finally turned up, and it is very difficult to summarize. Um, it's a book for people who are interested in Jefferson and a book for people who are interested in the Internet and a book for people who know very little about either. And I think it, it's an improbable success. I was saying to David earlier when we were, when we were talking just before we came in that um, I kept thinking about how I would have pitched this book to a publisher or an agent and would probably just have given up. But I'm glad he persisted. I think it's, it's uh, terrific. I'll make a couple of points by way, I hope, of stimulating some discussion. I'm hoping that that's what, what we'll have here in, um, in a moment. 
one of the things that comes through, one of the most uh, powerful themes in the book, is the, um, the sense of um, undiscovered territory. That's one of the main parallels, I think, with Jefferson's time and with the image of the moose, you know, the shock and awe uh, to uh, a European of seeing a moose. The book helps us to stand back and look afresh at the Internet in that way and, and as it were, remind ourselves of what an extraordinary... Uh, thing it is, and that we're just at the beginning of a process, that this is unexplored territory and who knows where it will lead. So I think that comes through strongly. The book does not, I think David has given a sense of, of this, does not actually give um, a clear notion of where it will lead. I think it's part of David's argument that it's impossible to say, but it might be interesting to share some speculations about that. Where does this end up? It's very stimulating in the book to read about the principles of classical liberalism and the arguments between Jefferson and Hamilton applied to the arguments we're having now about the Internet, how it's regulated, how it's structured. An awful lot of that seems to me you know, to work very well. It's interesting if you know the old arguments. It's interesting for me, uh, who knows actually rather little about um, Internet law, to see those arguments applied. Let me just highlight a couple of themes, though, that I think might be worth discussing. If I'm hoping that I've you know, got you all to resolve to read the book. Please do read it. But I want to look at a couple of themes that the book surfaces um, but does not, um, uh, I think, offer answers on, though I think David hints about where his thinking lies, and I'm not sure I entirely agree with him. One of the themes in the debate about Internet law, so I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's an argument between people who think that regulating the Internet is, is essentially um, a species of regulating any other communications technology, that the Internet doesn't really raise brand new questions. It's unexceptional. It doesn't raise brand new questions for regulation versus those who think it does. And I think David's uh, view is that uh, the Internet is, is so new, so different, that, it, that what we think we know about regulating uh, conventional communications technology doesn't really help us very much. I find, uh, if that's right, David, if that's your view, I, I found that I was resisting the, uh, that argument or, or really wanting to know a little bit more about why that should be. Um, I, uh, I think at one point, David, you know, men mentions other communications technologies. Um, it does not, to me, diminish the significance of the Internet to compare it, for example, to the telephone. I think in David's mind that does diminish the Internet. Maybe eventually uh, it will come to seem absurd to compare the Internet with the phone. But to my mind, um, that, that would be plenty to be getting on with. You know, if the Internet... We know the Internet already is uh, as important a technological breakthrough as the telephone. It doesn't seem to me to diminish it to make that connection. And we do actually have a debate about how to regulate telephone communications and other forms of communication. So I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical about one of David's main points, I think, which is that to emphasize the newness of this and the fact that it overthrows everything we, we think we know about regulation. And just to give a more specific example of that, which comes from my own background 
as a print journalist, and specifically as a British print journalist, I know more, as a, as a former senior editor at The Economist, I know more about British libel law than I wish I did. One of the big arguments about regulating the Internet, again, as I understand it, looking at this from a, dis from a distance, is um, how far, if at all, to extend um, our thinking about privacy, about accuracy, about defamation and libel to the Internet. And there's an important, the Internet, the technology has an, ex an important exclusion in our, in our regulatory apparatus in that ISPs cannot be held responsible, cannot be sued for libel if they publish uh, uh, libelous material. Now, we have uh, libel regimes differ very much from country to country. The American libel regime is much friendlier to a free press, much friendlier to the spirit of journalistic inquiry than the British libel system, which is notoriously draconian. Um, very often makes it very difficult to run investigative pieces that involve a little bit of reasonable speculation about what might be going on. And the celebrated instances of um, British libel law shutting down um, journalistic investigations that, with hindsight, it's clear would, it would have been better if, in the public interest if they'd been allowed to proceed. So there is an argument about what these rules should be. My question to David, I think, is um, why should it be that we, we would treat um, our thinking, in principle at least, on, about the Internet in this regard any different from our thinking about print publication? Would David's prejudices, would his priors about the need for freedom of expression, the Jeffersonian principle of freedom of expression on the Internet, extend backwards to traditional media? Um, that is a kind of, it seems to me, is a kind of check on the consistency of his argument. Are we for, let us suppose that we are about, we would wish to embrace a Jeffersonian ideal of, in, of, the, of the Internet, and let free speech flourish. Does that, does that commit us to the view that um, not only British libel law is wrong, which I certainly believe, but U.S. libel law as well? Why should that Jeffersonian principle not extend to print? print? It's just a question I throw out. Perhaps I've got a, I have an answer. You know, the, it's wrong to demand consistency, but then, of course, the question is, well, why is it wrong to demand <laughs> consistency in that case? Maybe we can come back to it. Absolutely. But do read the book. It's great. <laughs> Thank you, Clive. <laughs> Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, well, it is great. It's an absolutely wonderful book. And it's customary at these uh, panels to give sort of one pro forma praise for the book and then try to score a couple of points. But I entirely echo Clive's enthusiastic uh, uh, praise for this. It is sparkling. It is elegant. It draws unexpected uh, connections. It's provocative. And most of all, it's entirely unique. Uh, someone right before the panel was characterizing it as dessert. I think that doesn't do it justice. It's an extremely good champagne. And it is heady and clarifying in, in all uh, the best sort of ways. So it's a, it's a tour de force of an achievement and well worth reading. Uh, now for the uh, <laughs> trying to dig in the, the knife a bit. Uh, I, I, I echo Clive's skepticism about David's position on this uh, great debate about Internet governance between what David calls the, cyber the cyberspace uh, unexceptionalists and the exceptionalists. 
And I should say parenthetically, this debate is not the most important achievement of this book. David has made his position in this debate clear elsewhere. The book's achievement stands on its own regardless of whether or not you buy, as uh, Clive and I don't entirely buy, David's cyberspace exceptionalism. Uh, but I think it's worth thinking, and I want to think with you specifically about the problem of free speech on the net, which David uh, treats in some detail. And to broadly characterize the debate, he contrasts the unexceptionalists who think free speech on the net, like other debates on the net, is no different than debates in real space. Uh, governments can apply ordinary laws, and they have a right and a duty to protect their citizens from harm, regardless of the source and the medium. And then there are the exceptionalists with whom David has more sympathy, who say that applying these real space norms and laws to the net can lead to absurd and troubling results. The French shouldn't necessarily be able to apply their anti-Holocaust denial laws to Yahoo, because this could decrease speech for the web as a whole. Uh, and therefore, we should uh, think of the net differently than we do uh, real space. And then the Jeffersonian part is that David thinks that individuals have an unalienable right to govern themselves as they see fit. So he thinks that rules for common governance on the net in the free speech area and elsewhere should develop from the bottom up through consensus rather than through top-down laws and regulations. And that's what makes him sympathetic to Friedman's comment that everything is interconnected and no one is in charge. Well, I want to say that regardless of whether or not you're attracted to this romantic Jeffersonian vision, and I guarantee that uh, here at the Cato Institute, many of you will be deeply attracted to it, and I find elements of it uh, romantically attractive myself, uh, it doesn't begin to describe the complexity of the way speech actually is being regulated in the here and now on the net. David is something of a cyber... Uh, enthusiast. He's among those who think that despite the imperfect copyright protection and the difficulty of enforcing real law, this is a panacea for speech where there's never been more uh, raucous explosion of speech on, on the net that we should celebrate. I'm less optimistic, so I want to tell you about uh, an experience I had recently meeting the woman who has more control over free speech in the, uh, than anyone else in the globe, more than any judge, more than any legislator, uh, and more than any individual in history, arguably. And this is Nicole Wong, the associate general counsel at Google, who I had the chance to interview recently for, a, a, for the New York Times Magazine piece about free speech on the net. So Wong is the person who gets phone calls in the middle of the night from the Turkish government demanding the removal of videos that insult uh, Ataturk, which is a cri crime in uh, Turkey, or the Thai government demanding the removal of YouTube videos that insult the king of Thailand, and she has to decide what to do. So uh, here's what uh, Wong, uh, here's how she's struggling with this problem. Initially, when she got a call from Turkey saying, take down Ataturk videos posted by soccer fans, Greek soccer fans, who said that Ataturk was gay. This is the main thing that uh, soccer fans like to do to each other <laughs> uh, by putting funny hats on him and so forth. She was in the middle of the night. She doesn't speak Turkish. She had to figure out which of the videos were illegal, eventually identified them, figured out that many of them had already been voluntarily removed by uh, the users. But then the Turkish government is demanding the removal of more videos. Her initial uh, responses, we will take down the videos that are clearly illegal in Turkey, uh, but only uh, uh, block them in Turkey, only for Turkish users. Uh, this initially satisfies the Turkish government, which removes an order which had blocked access to YouTube for all uh, Turkish users. But then there's an anti-Ataturk uh, insult 
campaign uh, recently by, interestingly, by secularists in the government who are tr trying to resist uh, fundamentalism. And they make a more extreme demand. Last June, they want Google to block access to the offending videos throughout the world to protect the sensibilities of uh, Turks living outside of Turkey. Google, the pro-free speech, the Jeffersonian Corporation, refuses, saying one nation's government shouldn't be able to set the limits of free speech for users worldwide. The Turkish government is unmoved, and today it continues to block access to YouTube throughout Turkey. And just last week, in Davos, uh, of all places, the Prime Minister of Turkey walked out of a forum on Gaza, on the Middle East. It was posted on YouTube, and you were not able to get access to that in Turkey because it's blocked in Turkey. Weirdly, the Prime Minister himself himself had made a separate YouTube video making his own views on the Middle East crisis clear. Uh, when pointed out that you couldn't get it in Turkey, he said, well, if you really try, you have ways around blocking. <laughs> so technologies of control are not perfect, but they're uh, not entirely ineffective in some ways. So what does this tell us? Uh, first, it tells us that the main uh, 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 people with the most control over free speech are not the government. Uh, in 19, uh, uh, 19, Eugene V. Debs makes a speech against World War I. The government throws him in jail. It's not the broadcast networks. In the 1960s, one scholar said that there should be a mandatory right of reply to NBC and CBS because private corporations controlled the contours of free speech more than the government did. Now it's Google and Nicole Wong. And you can talk about uh, allowing norms to form all that you like, and you can celebrate the explosion of raucous uh, speech on the web, but you're not going to be able to get access to Google and YouTube in Turkey, and in practice, not having access to uh, Google uh, and, and YouTube means that your ability to find an audience and to be heard is radically restricted. And th these examples proliferate. The Thai example just had an update uh, as well recently. There, Google came up with a sensitive solution. They would block access to videos that were clearly illegal under the Thai Les Majesté law, but not those that merely offended the government. Uh, and they thought that that was the best balance. Tha Thailand was pretty happy with that for a while, although recently it just pulled The Economist uh, for violating the Thai Les Majesté law in real space, but not on the net. So people are continuing to uh, struggle with the right contours there. Uh, w what does this mean for governance and for the future? There are a bunch of ways that the internet will be governed in the age of Google, and none of them resembles, I'm afraid to say, the romantic uh, Jeffersonian effulgence that David uh, celebrates. Uh, one possibility is uh, traditional law. So in Congress, some Republicans and Democrats are concerned that places like Google have too much discretion to shape the contours of free speech. They've introduced a bipartisan bill called the Global Online Freedom Act, which would require Internet companies to disclose to a newly created office in the State Department all material filtered in response to demands by foreign governments. Google has sought modifications to the bill. They say without the flexibility to negotiate the way Nicole Wong did in Turkey, uh, they can't protect the safety of local employees, and they may get kicked out of these repressive countries where they think they can do more harm than good. They've successfully resisted the, the, the bill on those grounds, uh, but this is a real debate, and uh, the U.S. government could indeed pass this law, and Google would have to comply. Uh, for the immediate future, the more likely... Uh, outcome will be self-regulation. So just a few months ago, Google and Microsoft and Yahoo and French Telecom and a bunch of the big service providers, along with Internet advocacy groups uh, like the Center for Democracy and Te Technology, 
have agreed to establish voluntary standards for resisting worldwide censorship requests and to meet uh, frequently and to criticize companies that uh, too quickly censor speech. A, a nice effort for a while. They hope that they'll be able to tr create a trail of accountability that'll make the censors uh, more uh, transparent. Uh, but uh, this is not Wikipedia-like uh, uh, convergence of mobilized users. This is the gatekeepers themselves voluntarily deciding in a kind of progressive, enlightened way what uh, they think the best uh, solution is. An an another possibility, which is alarming and, and very real and very anti-Jeffersonian, uh, is censorship through code. So there's increasing pressure on companies like Comcast and Verizon to block controversial speech at the network level. So Europe and the U.S. recently agreed to require Internet service providers to block child pornography at the network level. In Europe, there are growing demands for network-wide blocking of terrorist incitement videos. You realize this is the end of Nicole Wong as the gatekeeper. You sign on through to the Internet through Comcast, and you're not actually able to get access to videos that the government has decided are uh, uh, inciting or to child pornography. And if this network-wide blocking solution proliferates, uh, this is the end of the Jeffersonian dream, and the uh, explosion of free speech as we know it would be dramatically curtailed. Uh, I... Um, thinking hard about this question, uh, would it, is it better to have Nicole Wong regulating speech or uh, governments regulating speech? I have a preference for Wong and her colleagues. These are free speech libertarians. Uh, they were former journalists. They celebrate the American free speech tradition. If I were creating three people to adjudicate the shape of global speech, I, you couldn't do much better than Google's done right now. But this is a tentative and passing moment in the history of free speech. I felt like the progressives who were trying to imagine uh, global bodies to, uh, of enlightened editors to regulate speech in the World War I era, realizing that this would soon be overtaken by the new technology of the radio. I think in 10 or 15 years, it will not be Nicole Wong who's uh, adjudicating. It'll be uh, uh, the, the situation will look very different. And that's why Wong and her colleagues actually don't want this responsibility. Their preferred alternative is for each government, each democratic government, to set up uh, its own body that would tell them what speech to regulate. So Germany currently has something like this. There's a government body that consults with private industry and identifies the videos that they think uh, insult the deny the Holocaust or insult uh, basic notions of privacy, and they tell Google what to remove. Google likes this because it's democratic and transparent. It's not just an, uh, a company making the decisions. It's a, a, it's a democratically accountable body. Sounds good, perhaps, in Germany. The problem is that most countries in the world are far less libertarian than Google, and especially without immunity from liability for uh, hosting material, which exists in the U.S. but not in Europe, if this Google solution to, were to proliferate, you might have much less speech protected than is currently protected by Google. So even the most plausible alternative that, that they propose is also not a Jeffersonian uh, dream. Uh, so is this, do, do I want to end on a note of uh, complete uh, uh, pessimism here in, uh, 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 here at Cato and in the face of, of David's uh, inspiring book? I don't. I think that, uh, like Jefferson, David Post has uh, great ability not only to inspire, but by articulating uh, free speech ideals at a high level of abstraction, perhaps although he's uh, too quick to 
gloss over the messy reality of the fights for regulation in the short term, he may have a profound insight about the long term. And, and that is this. David Enns, the wonderful ending of this book, says that uh, uh, he thinks that we've been too quick to dismiss Jefferson's insight about laws of nature. The, the Hamiltonian positivism slighted the fact that there are certain rights that actually uh, people do demand uh, as an inherent matter and that do shape the uh, scope and structure of government in profound ways. And the optimistic story for the net is that over the long run, as people experience in a concrete way the reality of blogs and wikis and uh, 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 speech, the, the raucous speech that is the net, they'll agitate against uh, censorship laws and slowly repressive governments will have to adjust. In Turkey, there was some success along these lines of bloggers 400 bloggers uh, had a grassroots censor, the censors movement, and they shuttered their websites in solidarity with mainstream sites that were banned for carrying contact that, content that insulted uh, uh, Ataturk. Uh, there wasn't huge success. Turkey's, uh, Google is still blocked in, in Turkey, so we shouldn't be uh, meliorist about the uh, success of grassroots campaign. But over time, it's surely the case that it's hard to sustain uh, repressive uh, regimes as more and more people experience and demand uh, the reality of free speech. Uh, so I hope that uh, in the long run, uh, David, uh, David and Jefferson are proved correct. But I fear that in the short term, uh, real space regulations may be far more effective than he imagines and hopes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeffrey Rosen, and, and all for fine presentations. I'm, I, I hasten to, to mention that I, I've met Nicole Wong. Um, she, she seems a very likable and friendly person, but, but then that was before the YouTube acquisition, so she, she, she seems quite fearsome now. <laughs> She's a lot busier than she used to be. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I know you all expect me to unleash post on these two in response, oh. but first I want to, I want to ask a question that, that, is, that is designed for the non- Techies, because something that David said in his presentation um, struck me as something that people need to understand better. He said of the Internet, it's running out of numbers. David, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I, I can't explain that pretty easily, I think. Um, Internet communication depends upon, uh, at bottom, uh, every machine on the net has to have a unique identifying number. It's called the IP address. <laughs> You get it automatically when you sign on to whoever your, whomever your Internet service provider is. That's what you get from an Internet service provider. You get a number um, and a connection to a router, and that's, then you can send and receive messages with that Internet protocol address. When they set the net up um, back in the early 1980s, they allowed space for the Internet Protocol address that would allow for four billion numbers, four billion separate addresses, a little bit more than that. Um, how could you need more than four billion? It was preposterous that it could, they had about 80 machines on this network at the time. So four billion seemed like. It was effectively infinite. And, in fact, it's now not big enough, not nearly big enough. Um, people have known this for the last 10 years. There are all sorts of funny technical kludges that uh, Internet service providers have been using for years so that you're actually sharing numbers with others in real time. Um, it's getting to be a crisis, and there's a new version of the fundamental Internet protocol 
um, that is being circulated uh, that will allow for, and it, two to the 128th numbers, it's like we will each be able to have 46 trillion or something like that. I mean, it's, a, again, an infinite number. We'll probably run out of those, too. <laughs> but even whether we switch over to that or not is a matter of, of great concern. Um, and it, it will change the net. I talk about this in the book. It will change the net uh, as we know it in many uh, profound ways. So, you know, I'm not trying to be the chairman of the FCC. God knows. But if I were, <laughs> am I out there? Um, I'd want to at least be on top of this. This is an important development for what it means about whether the net can, in fact, keep growing. So that's what I meant. Thank you. You're, How do I get at them? Yes. Uh, now it's your turn. Your, your interlocutors uh, the, suggested that your exceptionalism might be misplaced. Right. Um, let, let me talk briefly, and I do want to get to, to comments from the audience. So, so thank you to Clive and Jeff, really, for for both the nice things they said and the not-so-nice things they said. I mean, thank you for taking the idea seriously. Um, uh, the, this, this exceptionalism, unexceptionalism debate in cyberspace, you know, is, is, is the net different or not? You know, as, as Jeff knows, at least, because we've talked about it many times in the past, um, uh, this is a longstanding debate within sort of the cyberspace law community. We've been arguing about this back and forth uh, for a long time. Um, and, of course, the answer is, in some ways, the net is like Virginia in 1787, and in some ways it's not like Virginia in 1787. Really, all of the action is figuring out how is it like and how is it unlike. Um, it's like the telephone in some ways. Clive asked about the telephone. It's like the telephone as a technology in some ways. It's not in some ways, and in important ways. It's a persistent space. That's why we talk about it as a space. Um, it's there while we're here. The internet, I'm a member of communities on the internet that are still there while I'm sitting here talking to you. That is not true about the telephone. We don't talk about telephonia. People used to ask me when I, I gave this crazy idea about that the net is different, that oh, you know, it should have its own law. They go, what are you talking about? You know, we don't talk about telephonia as a, you know, we're not talking the law of telephonia or televisiana. Those aren't separate places. It's preposterous. And then I realized, of course, well, they're right. They're not separate places. We don't think about them that way. And we do think about the net that way. And the importance of it being a persistent persistent social spaces is that in persistent social spaces you can have law. You can have people who come together for the purpose of creating law in communities. So I think that is in a way that you, I guess we could all have a big conference call and keep it open all the time. <laughs> I, you know, we don't do that with the telephone and we can't do that with, with broadcasting. So it's different in that regard and we could continue. It's similar in some other ways. Um, this is an important debate. Uh, uh, that is hopefully ongoing. But, you know, the more I had this debate, this is a great thing about this, the more I had this debate with people about exceptionalism and unexceptionalism, I realized I got to bring out the moose. I mean, the moose was part of that debate, too. It was Jefferson's way of saying it's really different over there. This has things in it you've never seen before. Um, so one of the things I tried to do in the book is say, you know, what's the moose for cyberspace? What, what, what would I bring back to the people in 1985 who think, don't know about this new place, and to show them that it's really new, that it needs some new thinking. I'm not sure what that is. My candidate was Wikipedia. I'm not sure that that's the only one. I'd like to hear more. Come to the website and tell me what you think. But that's the thing. I'd bring that back to someone in 1985 and say, you've never seen anything like this before. Look at this. 
This is an encyclopedia built by hundreds of thousands of unpaid vo volunteers, and it is now translated into 50 different languages. Nobody gets paid. Um, it's the world most, world's most widely cited reference book. They look at you and go, whoa! That's really amazing. That's what Jefferson was trying to do with the moose. And I'm sort of dragging out my moose just to, for the explicit purpose of saying it is different. There are new things out there. Um, so that's one. Two, quickly. Um, I, the, the, the free speech points that, that both Clive and, and Jeff make are, are important. Um, I don't have a quick response, and I won't uh, pr pretend that I do. I mean, the challenge is to find out how we govern this place, allowing for the fact that people have different views about free speech. That's a You know, do I want to persuade everybody to be a Jeffersonian? Yeah, of course I do. Um, I think he was right about that. I think that's just having a conversation with the cab driver on the way here that, uh, from Iran, who he was right with me on that. It's like, oh, and he goes back to Iran, and everybody's telling everybody to shut up, and they're all fighting the same old damn fights they've been having for 5,000 years. And it's so nice to be here where people don't keep grudges, and you can just talk about whatever you want. Um, so do I want to persuade people about that? Of course. I hope people in Turkey read my book. Um, and it strengthens the Jeffersonian position, but of course, not everybody will adopt that position, and they shouldn't adopt that position, and they have different views about the limits of speech. How do we design a global institution that has room for these different views about speech? That's a very hard problem. I mean, again, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think Jefferson had a view about the self-governing communities who could come together and define their own law through consent, and I think it has potential on the net, but uh, I let uh, others decide how viable that may be. The final point right, is, um, I guess just in response to, you know, Jeff's comments made me think, um, you know, let's kind of get hard-headed about this. This is all romantic, as, as he put it. And I'm perfectly happy to be labeled a romantic, believe me, um, about this. What else is there to be romantic about these days? Sure. Um, uh, but, you know, let's get down to sort of hard-headed reality and what's really going to happen, and the governments are going to clamp down, and we all sort of know that. And I just, all I'll say in response to that is take a look at the plan for the government of the Western territories uh, that Jefferson propounded in 1784. Nothing was more preposterous than that. That could couldn't possibly have come to pass, but it did. You know, that's what history, Jonathan Spence says, history is the way of, of, of show, um, the study of history shows us how improbable things can be. Um, and I think that's, that's a lesson that's important also to keep in mind, that just because something looks not feasible today, given the realities of things, does not mean it, it, it can't happen. So that's my defense of that. So I'm ready for questions. Cato events are streamed on the web. Uh, at Cato.org, including, we think, to Turkey. So it's good to have that audience. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, guys. Um, loosen up. Gentlemen, yeah. rejoinders? <laughs> rejoinders, uh, any, any comment on, on what David's had to say? You, you talk about dragging out the moose, and the moose is Wikipedia. But you can't drag out Wikipedia in China, because China has made it technologically impossible to do that. And I'm not sure the moose is the moose's Wikipedia. Maybe the moose, the moose is, is YouTube. You can't drag out the moose in Turkey either. So it's just, you, you, there were two parts of your response that were good. One is, uh, should, should we celebrate the unregulated reality of the web? You say yes, because look at Wikipedia. There I think that just severely under-describes and acknowledges the complexity of the real regulations that make it impossible for everyone to enjoy the effulgence of free speech that people, say, in the United States uh, do. Uh, but, but then as to the future, 
history defines the improbable? Sure, but lots of things happened in between Jefferson's plan and the current reality of free speech uh, in the United States today, including judicially enforceable courts that enforce norms that had been won through and declared through political activism. So I think it is an optimistic story because first the norms are uh, declared politically, uh, they're fought for, they, they're, they become a matter of consensus, and then they can be judicially enforced. But I just think, David, you could do a lot of you could give us a lot of uh, useful details uh, rather than calling uh, romantically but ineffectively for people just to come together and allow communities to govern themselves. That's just not going to happen right now because governments are refusing to do that and technologies are refusing to, to allow that. You could give, give us a more precise sense of how your good story rather than the bad story might actually come about. I just add one thing. that In my own mind, I want to try and keep it clear that uh, keep a distinction clear, and that's a distinction between the regulation that we would like to see and the regulation that is that is feasible or that we will see. I mean, in you know the, the process you've been describing, Jeff, it's a, a kind of a battle between governments that want to regulate and, in many cases, uh, way over-regulate. I'm sure we, you know, we, the, the unanimous agreement here way over-regulate the Internet and whether they can do that and how big the exceptions are. You know, the people who say, well, of course, um, YouTube isn't going to show that video of uh, Turkish Prime Minister walking out of the meeting, but there are ways around it. You know, people, and, of course, people in Turkey have seen that video and there were huge kind of street demonstrations in favor of, 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 of the guy walking out of the meeting. So it was widely, widely known that it happened. Um, so I think that's an important distinction. You know, what is the what is the regulation that we are likely to see? How is this battle between governments who want to regulate and the technology that resists it? Uh, how is that going to play out? And then there's a separate question which I think needs to be um, which uh, needs to be addressed. I mean, you know, maybe I'm not entirely a Jeffersonian. I've got a Hamiltonian streak, but there is the issue of how much regulation is desirable whether it's feasible or not. And I mean, my opening prejudice there is that some regulation is desirable. Some regulation is desirable. I would give libel, libel uh, as a case in point. No sandwiches for Mr. Crook. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take it out to the audience. Um, we have a question down over here. <laughs> Uh, thanks. This was a, a, a great presentation from all three of you. Thank you very, very much. I'm, I'm Mark McCarthy with Georgetown University. And uh, up until last fall, uh, when I left uh, to join the Georgetown faculty, I was Senior Vice President for Public Policy at Visa. And I, I want to you know, extend the discussion a little bit to, in a couple of directions. Um, it, first of all, the, the issues that were raised about who governs the Internet go well beyond free speech. They go to you know, the clash of law generally. Uh, and financial institutions, in addition to you know, search engines and uh, websites and network providers, are involved in trying to figure out what the appropriate laws should be in this kind of circumstance. So in, in the, the, one point is that this is a very, very general problem. It does call for substantial new thought. It's not simply taking old law and saying, okay, it's the same old thing. Uh, but how you come down in the end of it is really going to be a very, very complicated thing. What we found at Visa was that we needed to move in roughly the same direction that Google moved in, which is you had to start respecting local law in some fashion. Uh, you, you try to do it the way it happened in Internet gambling, 
where you'd respect local U.S. law and law in other jurisdictions, but in places where Internet gambling was permitted, you'd allow Internet gambling to take place. And there are ways of constructing systems to, to do that kind of thing. Uh, my point is that the, 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 the issues got even more complicated when you went beyond governments and complaints come into you from third parties, private entities that have problems with what's going on in the Internet that seem to violate what they perceive to be their rights and, 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 uh, and, and privileges on the Internet, copyright ent uh, entities, entities that have trademark uh, issues as well. You know, there were all issues that had to be accommodated in some fashion. And we got to the point where it seemed like the best thing to do was to look for government to cohere the different regimes that uh, were in conflict on the Internet. In other words, to move up a level instead of going down a level to say we want to have this thing bubble up from you know, individuals or Internet communities, you would go up from national governments to some form of inter international cooperation as a way of resolving the issue. If you don't do that, then you're stuck with Google as the, the gatekeeper or you're stuck with Visa and MasterCard as the gatekeeper. And it's not clear to us that those are the kind of uh, responsibilities that those private sector entities really want. Can, can I respond to that? Thank you. That's, uh, you're right. It, it is much broader than free speech. It's the law. It's the law of fraud. It's the law of credit card processing. It's the law of securities transactions. It's all of this to the extent it takes place on the net, and we don't know where it is. Uh, it's very hard to know what local law means in that context and very difficult for people like in your circumstance or former circumstance who are actually trying to comply with law to the best of their ability. Um, the one thing I, I guess I, I do want to say uh, is that what worries me in a sense about the, the, the comment and should worry us all, I think, or at least we should be thinking about it, is that there's, there always is this dynamic um, when, when talking about Internet regulation, Internet law, um, of driving things up to the next level. It would be easy. I say this in the chapter about, you know, conflicts of law and France has its free speech law and we have ours and what governs if I have a website that's accessible in France? Do their laws apply? Do our laws apply? How, how does that work? Well, it would be easy to imagine an international, coherent, international, global set of laws. There should be one law for fraud. You know, what's fraud? You go look it up in the great book of the law. Um, and credit card processing and all the rest. That's a bad answer. I, I don't know how else to, to put it. Or the, the Jeffersonian in me tells me that's the wrong answer. It's, I can imagine it. We will muddle through if it happens. Um, it will advantage some people, but I think disadvantage most, quite frankly. I think the hard problem is how to maintain the diversity of law that we live with in the real world. That is a good thing that we have different laws of fraud and different laws of free speech and different laws about what credit cards are on this medium that does not seem to easily respect the boundaries between them. And, and so as a statement of the problem, that's perfect. Um, statement of the solution, I don't have nearly as well crafted, quite, quite honestly. I invite everyone to, to, to think hard on this question. Just one thought. You could imagine a global uh, solution that would favor freedom. So if the World Trade Organization required all countries to give something like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act immunity to all websites that host content, immunizing them for the uh, consequences of it, that would be great for free speech. But it's just not going to happen. As David suggests, a global law is likely to be 
less favorable to libertarian values than uh, decentralization. Your great insight, though, is that Visa's uh, solution, which was also Google's, is the great argument against exceptionalism. Against uh, Initially, Jerry Kang of Yahoo tried to say, we don't have to obey any French court. How, you know, the law doesn't apply to us. Uh, speech is free. Uh, let, let it all hang out, baby. You know, he's starry-eyed and, and happy. When he realized how many assets the French judge could seize on a daily basis uh, and that it was not a sustainable business model, he caved. So other companies will be doing that. The final thought is that maybe one alternative given the necessity of obeying local laws to global solutions is geographic ones. So for privacy, I'm increasingly convinced the solution to the biggest problem, which is having all of our search terms, uh, both on Google and YouTube, turned over to uh, hostile governments that could prosecute dissidents or leak to the press in a way that would be a privacy Chernobyl. The best solution is destroying the data, not storing it for a long period of time. Google has been cutting down the number of storage time. Initially it was 18 months, now 11 months. But in the most repressive countries, Yahoo and Google, I gather, are considering purging immediately so that they cannot turn over data even if requested by a foreign subpoena. That protects their people on the ground and also uh, protects free speech. That kind of sensitive judgment, country by country, storage times will be different in some places rather than others, uh, might be a good technological solution, and it's also a nicely federalist solution that Jeffersonians could embrace as well. Extra sandwiches for Jeff Rosen. <laughs> good. All right. That's what I was that's why I came. He gets Clyde. question. Um, <laughs> second row, brother rail. Hi, my name is Jay Stanley from the ACLU. Um, my question for you is uh, what, if anything, you've done with slavery in your book? Um, ah. Good. Because, and the question for me was sparked by the comment about uh, the comparison in terms of unexplored spaces. Um, and I once read a wonderful book by the historian Edmund Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom. Mm -hmm. And he sort of argues in there that, that the fact that there was all this unexplored territory was very intimately related to slavery because if you wanted to make more money, I mean, ba how much money you made was based on how much money you could farm, how much land you could farm, and how many people you could get to work for you besides yourself. And if people could go off to the frontier and farm for themselves, they had no incentive to stay there and work for you. So uh, as soon as word got back to England that this whole indentured servitude thing was, no, you know, was a bad deal, they started uh, you know, bringing in slaves. Um, and so in some ways, the very freedom of, the, of Virginia, the fact that there was all this unexplored territory, was intimately related to the, to the most oppressive you know, uh, yeah. removal of freedom. And I just wondered uh, if, you, if you'd thought about those kind of issues or, you know, I mean, because unlimited free open spaces is threatening to a lot of people. That's, re that's really a very interesting comment, and, and, and th th thank you for that. I, I didn't know that was the direction you were going to go with the, with, with the question. I, I have thought a little bit about it, um, but not in the way you, 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 you pose it. I've thought about the slavery thing. You can't write a book in which Jefferson is a major player without butting up against the question of slavery, obviously. Um, I, I used to tell people, I still tell people, I mean, this is a... Um, I've written one of the only books you'll read about Jefferson that doesn't mention the word slavery, um, although that's not strictly true. It's in there in a f one footnote. Um, but I, I didn't deal with slavery because I, I couldn't think of how to use it, quite frankly. I mean, I, I'm, really, I'm not writing a biography of Jefferson that is trying to give a balanced picture. Um, I was trying to sort of figure out some of his ideas that I could apply in, in some coherent way to the problems I was interested in about, about internet law. Slavery, I didn't come in to, I didn't see where it, 
would lead me. Um, that's a very interesting little door, though. Um, that that the, the 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 connection with between this open, the sort of the great openness, in fact, leading to some, uh, you know, the, the the existence of freedom to to exit, in fact, makes. May, may, may create a regime in which it is more difficult to exit, to, 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 to put it in, in those terms, may, may strengthen a regime that is, in fact, locking people down. I will have to think about that. I mean, I think that's a very interesting. That's not in the book. Um, that's the next chapter. Of the, of the, it's a chapter in the next book, maybe, if there is a next book. Or you write that book. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Other questions, comments? Over here, against the wall. Hi, I'm Kat Walsh from the Wikimedia Foundation, so I've actually been fairly interested Welcome. in following this. Uh, this is partly jumping off of Jeff Rosen's comments. Uh, uh, what we do at Wikimedia is largely a kind of federalist approach, letting local communities decide the standards for what they're going to do. But it becomes a little bit more difficult when you're not divided geographically but by language. For example, the French language Wikipedia is not Wikipedia France, but all the French-speaking uh, all of the French-speaking countries. So deciding a policy becomes somewhat difficult. So I'd kind of like to hear thoughts on that. Jeff, you figured out that you figured out that other thing. You got this one. I, I suppose it would just reinforce the difficulties that you face in the English-speaking world, where American and British norms of libel and defamation and hate speech are quite different. Uh, but both of those are even more different than the French and German approaches. And when there's, as you suggest, variations among the democracies and between democracies and authoritarian countries, all of which speak the same language, that might be difficult. But Wikipedia would be a great challenge and case study for David, because he his model is the Wikipedia model, like that of other uh, internet meliorist Jonathan Zittrain also celebrates the idea that people working through consensus can work out their common differences. My instinct is they can't. I mean, when you have a clash between uh, banning speech only when it causes imminent harm and banning speech when it insults a group uh, that has strong sensibilities about it, no amount of conversation, virtual or otherwise, is going to sort that out. Do you have any concrete examples of, say, a free speech clash where the community has kind of uh, debated it and come to some sort of solution? Difficult to think of offhand, actually. Uh, we, tend to, we tend to bias toward uh, what the laws are in the United States simply because all of our service, servers are hosted there. That's where our legal presence is. But uh, you know, uh, it's kind of difficult, for example, the French Wikipedia, the German Wikipedia, the, to, have, to have a policy where it would exclude most of the people who can speak that language and contribute would uh, stop them from per participating. So... It, uh, we tend to uh, to favor for the, the freest speech as possible, but that's um, not always what we've done. So. I, I would just add one thing that it, it seems to me these language communities are in fact sort of prototypes for community-based, call it laws or norms or or, or whatever you want, whatever you want to. But that's they have not disappeared. The net is not making them disappear. You know, the net, one thing about the net, the net is a common language. The net is our Esperanto. It enables us all to communicate with one another in a, in a, there's a, there's a common global language now. If you didn't, you know, hooray. Um, and it has allowed many other different languages, in fact, to flourish. Um, and those, it seems to me, become sort of the building blocks, potentially, for community, there is a community of German language speeches, any community of French language speeches, and et cetera, et cetera, Turkish. Um, and 
that's the, you know, it's not geographically constrained. That's the good part and the hard part. It's, it's a global community of people who come together for a certain purpose. And if you take seriously the notion that uh, governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed, that's a place where people can come together and, in fact, decide the rules they want to live under, it seems to me, with respect to free speech or fraud or other things. Other questions or comments? Down here in the front. Good afternoon, Rochelle Moore, Nubian Enterprises. I have a question in terms of the internet law as it relates to free speech when it, when it comes to radio stations who broadcast over the internet. And even though it's time delayed and even though it may be uh, people who are calling in for their opinions, how does that um, protect or how does it violate a person's uh, livelihood when they're impugning someone's character? When they're, um, sorry? When they're impugning someone's character, faming their character. You know, the, they use the radio over the Internet, as well as blogs, people who use blogs and write all types of things. And how do you fight that legally in court when you have, well, you can print out a copy of it or you can, go to their website and hear the particular radio show over again where they're defaming either a civilian or even an elected official's character. How do, is that possible to be, you know, is that a liable case? Gentlemen? You wanna, it's, it's harder in the U.S. than it would be in Britain, which is why I think Clive will give us the British uh, example but in America, if you're a private figure and you say that you're uh, being defamed uh, or you're having private but truthful information about yourself uh, ventilated, the question is, was it done maliciously? Was there reckless disregard of the facts for libel? Or in the case of the private disclosure of facts, would it be sh highly offensive to a reasonable person? And this is a very hard standard to meet. So just to give one example of the blogs, there was a congressional staffer recently who was gossiped about by a woman he was unwisely uh, sleeping with called Washingtonian, who blogged about her experiences not only with him but with several Bush staffers who were paying her for her favors. He he's just sued her because he said, this is outrageous. You disclosed my most intimate sexual habits. This is an outrage. He might not win because in an age of sexual display, lots of people don't agree about how much uh, is outrageous, and th it's very hard to meet that bar. And if you're a public figure, of course, it's even uh, harder. So for, for all these reasons, the U.S. has made it pretty hard to recover for that sort of thing. Bad for privacy, easy to defame, but better for free expression. Clive, do you want to tell us how in England it might be easier to file that kind of suit and why that would be a better Well, the, ma the main difference, as you know, is, is on the burden of proof than in, in the British uh, libel system. Um, the person bringing the action for defamation uh, doesn't have to prove that what the writer said was false. The writer has to prove that what he said was true. Mm. So um, journalists will often be in the position that they, you know, they have stories that they know are true, um, but uh, their sources won't stand up in court to say so, and therefore they cannot prove the truth of their allegations, and they lose uh, their libel action. Um, so that, that's the main difference, the burden of proof. I mean, I, th I mean, you won't be surprised to hear that I, that I think the British system is crazy. 
Um, but nonetheless, that, that, that is the system. And I don't, just to repeat the point, um, I don't go so far as to argue that there is no case for any kind of libel protection, um, even though saying that has cost me my lunch. I would, like to, uh, I would like to hear the argument put for abolishing all, all libel protection. Even, I mean, it seems to me that the U.S. Has a, good, has, a good, has a much better libel law than Britain and on balance a good libel law. What is wrong with that? And I, I guess I still want to know why, in principle, those kinds of arguments should not go across to the Internet. Whether it's feasible is another question, but in principle, it seems to me that would be desirable. Well, this isn't isn't my uh, my turn today. It's David Post, so I'll just I'll just give you your lunch back and we talk talk later. Okay, let me just again two two quick responses. One is just as a as a matter of sort of internet as as an internet problem, um, uh, being defamed or libeled on some website somewhere. Um, how do you get a remedy? The answer to the question is uh, the you know. Whose law applies? Is it the United States law, this relatively relaxed uh, view of libel, or the more restrictive British law? Um, the answer that we have come up with thus far, the conventional wisdom, is it's where the defendant's assets are located. That's the only thing we can sort of uh, say, is that if this is a server in Bulgaria and uh, run by someone with a bank account in Switzerland, um, then you better go to either Bulgaria or Switzerland to get a remedy because you will have to seize assets um, if, if, if you want a remedy, and that's the only place you can do it. It's not a very good answer. I call this jurisdictional whack-a-mole. Um, you know, it's like any place your assets pop up, boop, you know, they can come and get you. Um, but that is the answer the international system gives in a, in a sense now. And the second thing I, I wanted to say about this was just Jeff had mentioned this um, uh, quickly in passing, and it's a very important point about U.S. law, which is Section 230, he mentioned, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which provides under U.S. law that you're not liable for libel or defamation, um, uh, and or, or other things for information online that you are simply transmitting for someone else. So if you are just an intermediary and someone else is providing the content, the information content provider is liable, but the intermediary is not. So if, if, if this is something that appears on a website like, like the Vala Conspiracy blog, the owner-operator of that website is not respon legally responsible if I defame somebody on that site because they can point to Section 230 and say we are immune, go find David Post if you want to sue him. It's an extremely important uh, provision in United States law and, and I think a very good one and I think Jeff and Clive would both agree with that. It has led to the growth of the medium in a, in a particularly uh, fruitful way, I think. Let's take one or two more questions before we adjourn. Do we have others? Back on the far right as the audience faces me. Hello, uh, my name is Andrew Feinberg. I'm with Broadband Census, and I uh, guess I'm directing this to either Professor Rosen or Mr. Post. Um, you speak you up, speak up, speak up just a little, little bit, please. I'm sorry. Uh, you mentioned uh, the rise of uh, regimes, especially in uh, Great Britain and Europe, of ISP-level filtering with the, I guess, imminent uh, passage hopefully, of uh, some sort of broadband stimulus bill in the United States and 
presumably more government money attached to deployment of internet services. Uh, do you or any other panelists see a danger in more and more strings being attached and, and chipping away at free speech protections? Jeff, do you want to? Yes, it's a very good question. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the precise sequence of the ISP level blocking, and I'm not going to get this right. I think there was initially a request from local or state level prosecutors for some sort of child porn blocking. That w Sorry? National. For the National Association of Attorney Generals. That was resisted, but then what was the uh, organization that whose request was then accepted? Nick, so uh, and, and t Nick, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Yes, so uh, it'll be a back and forth, and the fact that there was initial uh, resistance suggests that the, the the censors may not get everything they like, but as you suggest, there'll be increasing political saliency to the argument. How can you take all this government money and broadcast filth? And the scary thing is. It's uh, not going to stop at child pornography. In Europe, the blocking is now going to the level of terrorist incitement videos. It's very much a slippery slope. And you'd imagine that if we were trying to identify the greatest and most immediate threats to speech, that kind of net level blocking would definitely be among them. And, and hate speech, I think, is the next thing on the, on the list in, in lots of the European discussions about this. They, they, they push for um, prohibitions uh, against hate speech in, in a manner that would be I think clearly unconstitutional under United States law, but nonetheless could find their way in. I think these are serious well, not, yeah, dangers. They are in, in Britain. And they are in in some places. Yeah. And One last question. In the back, um, along the aisle. Hi, I've been really enjoying the panel. Hi, thank you for the excellent panel. My name is Berta. I'm actually a banking attorney here in town and a GW grad, but... I recently came back from California, and I stayed at a very nice upscale hotel, tried to log in to my internet service, like using my laptop in the room, and up popped this message that it was twelve ninety five for a 24-hour cycle of usage, right. and I just became so angry, <laughs> and my reaction, I think, points toward um, what something a lot of people of my generation and definitely younger experience, which is the fact that the internet is perceived as a right. It's like a natural resource now. Unlike the telephone or other technologies, um, the internet allows us to participate in life on so many different levels, socially, professionally. You can do so many, so many segments of your life can be lived online. And that, I think, seems to tend towards um, categorizing the internet as more of something that's you know, it points towards its exceptionalism a little bit because when people are deprived of it or don't have access to it, there's like a real anger there and there's a real sense of entitlement that governments should provide adequate uh, broadband in rural areas and that type of thing. So I just had that comment to make. Thank yeah. you. Oh, and actually, to the extent that uh, individuals in China and other com countries that have been repressed do have the chance to experience, as Professor Rosen pointed out the internet. I do think that that will definitely change things. I remember reading online how people in China in their 20s, a lot of them are very um, just disinterested in the fact that they don't have access to free speech. A lot of them just don't care. Uh, but a lot of them do. I can also testify to that. Um, that that's uh, I've, I've just as 
angry when I get those messages. As, uh, <laughs> you know, there's twelve ninety five. The internet is a vast expanse like unexplored Virginia. Yeah. Yet you got to pay twelve ninety five. Like you got to get four hours. Right. Why can't I just go there for nothing? Um, I wrote the interesting. I mean, I don't have much of a comment about that. I'm I'm not an expert necessarily. It costs the infrastructure costs money. How we will end up paying for it is a very complicated question of economics. Um, should we have a pipe to everybody's house? Uh, yeah, if it were free, that would be great. Um, if not, should the government pay? All those questions, difficult, um, important sort of policy decisions about who, who pays the bill, because there is a bill at the end of the day for this resource that does not exist sort of without it. I thought more interesting, in a sense, was this notion that you can't live without it anymore. I mean, you, can, you, 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 you it, it is difficult to function, getting increasingly difficult to function. We will all be spending more of our time there. I mean, again, that doesn't sound uh, like a terribly radical thing to say, um, but it was a terribly radical thing to say 10 or 15 years ago. A lot of people did not understand that or see that coming, um, that it would become sort of an indis indispensable part of people's lives around the globe. I think it makes these issues more, to me, it makes the, the issues at least more compelling about governance, if you will, not just who pays for the infrastructure, which is, could be the subject of another panel. It has been the subject of panels here, many of them. Um, uh, but also, how do we decide the rules under which we live in this place because we are going to be spending so much of our time there. So many more of us are going to be doing business there and starting business there and meeting our friends there and doing the things we do in life there. So these, these issues, I hope, are not just esoteric academic issues, but sort of important issues about our, our life there. Well, I think our discussion today has, has opened up many new windows onto the Internet, onto Jefferson, uh, raised new questions. The book raises even, even more, and I, I, too, commend it to you. In Search of Jefferson's Moose, Notes on the State of Cyberspace. Let me thank David Post, the author, and our commenters, Clive Crook and Jeffrey Rosen. Join me in thanking them. And we'll adjourn upstairs to the Winter Garden for some lunch, everybody included. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that didn't sound like free speech to me. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't tasted the sandwiches yet. It may not be much of an incentive. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, great. Yes, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much.